listening to The Limitless, the podcast between Jason Halsey, uh, listening in to a conversation between Kate Ledegar and Tessa Lena. I live a life that's working for me. What I respect, you just can't see. directed me to a post that you had written a couple months ago maybe or several weeks ago anyway says something that you're you've been thinking about recently but i i i wanted to start with um commenting or having you comment on a very recent post of yours about facing reality Mm -hmm. which you talk about um a past abusive relationship that you were in and um you uh liken that to the state of many people in the present reality and how people are um, sometimes uh, unable to to see what is really happening to them. And you talk about the emotional mechanisms through which we perceive reality and how by default we always fall on the familiar. And this is something that's an important um, important idea to me because I have been in a constant struggle with this idea of, um, I I have luckily quite a large community of people who are um, fairly like-minded in that they are quite concerned about things that have been going on for the past year and a half and um, talk about it and do research and listen to people who've done their own research but then I also have a very large community of family members and friends who um, are very much, as you express it, I would think falling on what they are familiar with and um, perhaps their own emotional mechanisms protecting them from seeing anything other because it would just be too huge and too hard. But from their point of view, they would say to me, well, you're just being paranoid. You're, you're, you're imagining all sorts of um, <clears throat> ill intentions and machinations that just aren't there. And everything's just normal. And you need to get out of that headspace. That would be the contention. So I have a group of people like that. And then a group of people who are more concerned as I am that things are not as they seem. And I think that's your spot too, your spot of concern. And so I wanted to ask you about the comment that you make. You said, unless we see the face of the machine that perhaps we are unlikely or unable to question that there is anything wrong with the reality that's being presented to us through the mainstream. So maybe talk about your idea of what the seeing the face of the machine means. You you gave an example of the a nurse at Elmhurst Hospital talking about her experience, but you know, in general and perhaps specifically regarding that, what do you mean by that? 
seeing the faces. Well, I guess we can spend the next five hours talking just about that. <laughs> so let me start with an innocent hypothetical. I think in general, we as human beings, when it comes to predicting the future, I mean, we can only make theories and hypotheses, right? And I have the same dilemma you ha you're having, you you're referring to, as far as trying to explain why exactly I am concerned. And as I'm having those conversations, I have to say that I do understand their perspective. At the same time, I cannot unlearn or I unsee what I have learned and what I have seen and what I have felt. But here's where seeing the face of the machine comes in handy. I think that, again, if we just try to look at the reality in a purely linear logical way, then any kind of hypothesis has its own internal logic. I mean, anything is a story, right? We can think of it as a story of a health crisis and say general incompetence and general greed and corruption like it has always been. And I am sure there's a very fat degree of all of that as in general incompetence and general corruption. All those things do exist. They did not just disappear because other things. But depending on the sensory perspective, one can lean on that kind of relatively pleasant reality. I mean, there's a lot of unpleasant things about that too, but generally speaking, nothing crazy. Okay, we have this difficulty, things are bizarre, but generally things are under control. And I actually, I do want to focus on the notion of control at some point, because I think that's a very important emotional trigger. Then if somebody has seen the face of the machine, and by that, I mean an experience in which your ordinary kind of business as usual, things are relatively more or less normal. That kind of feeling of life just gets removed from you. You don't have it anymore by some kind of traumatic experience, or maybe you know somebody personally who went through that, or you went through that, but there's some undeniable sensory experience which shows you very viscerally that things it's possible for things to be completely abnormal. It's possible for that business in, as usual paradigm to not apply. And it's possible for you to be food on the table in a very little sense of it, or have no rights at all, be completely stripped of what a regular Western person just takes for granted. And I did not fault a regular Western person for that because that's kind of just regular normal state, healthy state, like nobody's going to, abuse you, rape you, arrest you for no reason, violate you for no reason. And of course, different, you know, people from different demographics and different ancestries have different family stories and different sensory perspectives here. But in general, a Western person traditionally, at least for the past, in the course of the past few decades, expects some kind of business as usual scenario. Like if something goes wrong, you can file a lawsuit and this way or the other justice will be restored in most cases. And yes, there are injustices and there are wars, but it's elsewhere. And again, there's some kind of order, which we need for our mental health to feel like there's some kind of order. In my case, what happened? Well, as I was telling in this article, I, I married an abusive man. That was part one of what happened. And before I did that, 
even though I did have other very dramatic experiences, I went through such as like I encountered a sex trafficker when I was traveling in China and Tibet and I fought him off and that was dramatic, but very quick. It, it, like very dramatic, but very quick. And I, it, it took me maybe like a month or two to recover and, and everything was fine. But then more or less, I was going to good schools, like top schools, top grades, everything seemed smart. Like I, I in America, I uh, mastered a completely new field for me, which was computers out of being a humanities person and I'm getting job offers, like everything is fine. And look what I've accomplished. I'm brave and I'm smart. And I traveled all the way across the ocean away from my family. Look at me, right? So that was my self-perception that I'm invincible and I was artistic and everybody complimented me on my intellectual abilities, blah, blah, blah. So then from there, I married a guy who was abusive. And of course, when we were dating, he was the sweetest. It was kind of a classic story. So he was the sweetest and then he turned into a complete nightmare as in he was abusive emotionally, physically, and like it was really, really, really bad and like really crude and impossible. And I was in denial. I could not, I could not imagine, I could not connect the two realities because in one reality, I am this person who, I mean, yes, there may be some difficulties and I had, like I had to overcome problems and, but overall I've checked all the marks. And then there's this other reality where it's crazy. And my husband has his hands on my throat and he calls me names. And then we have parties with the in-laws and I have to put a good face on because it's just a crazy, like I can't even. And, and I don't get enough sleep because he doesn't let me sleep because he wants like this, that, and the other. And he uses it as a mechanism and then he threatens me. And then he threatens me to like to thwart my immigration after I actually, you know, I was getting all my immigration taken care of through work. And then because we got married, he wanted me to leave the job and I was dependent on it. It was like a nightmare. So, and for a very long time, although objectively speaking, it was absolutely clear that it was batshit. It was completely abnormal and abusive, but it took me a very long time to connect those reality, namely actually, he turned me in to immigration and he was trying to get me deported. I got arrested, I was in jail. I was subjected to like a whole other thing in immigration detention, which completely deprived me of that reality of where I'm a person with rights because you have no rights there. They can get physical, they can do whatever, they can threaten you. They, I mean, like, like everything is like out, out of the window, all guarantees out of the window. And I was very scared and I felt like a completely just trapped animal. I mean, the, the things that I went through with that are really like unspeakable, really bad. And, but then after that, I finally had to admit to the fact that, you know what? Like it's possible for a person who perceives themselves as like relatively successful, smart, blah, 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 like by Western standards it's impossible to all of a sudden find yourself on the receiving end of the machine who wants to eat you. And it really doesn't, doesn't care at all what you think of yourself, what your past was, what your status was or wasn't, what your accomplishments were, how smart you are, stupid or proud or not proud. Because even as I was 
interacting with the you know, wonderful officers and uh, and I'm saying it sarcastically and I'm like and I would tell them you know like what, what are you doing it's it's my husband who set me up and they're like oh you can sort it out with your husband so are you going to cooperate with us and and like what do you do so on the one hand it's like a James Bond movie it's crazy on the other hand you realize that you have no control over your circumstance at all in that circumstance right in that situation so after that and everything ended well i had wonderful friends they supported me they hired the best lawyer in town i was in chicago and so gradually 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 after you know i got out of jail in about a month and then in a, in a matter of a few years it all got resolved you know i was never charged with anything i was not deported everything got sorted out wonderfully and my friends were really supportive. I found out that I had more friends than I ever knew I had. I mean, they were amazing. I am, to this day, I'm grateful to all of my friends who really put their hearts out for me. Without them, I don't know. I mean, they really, really saved me. And it took me years, years to recover. I, I was very, very damaged by that experience. And even as I was hiding it, even though, you know, I got back to my life and my job that I had at the moment, all, all, all those things did happen. But I was terrified of if somebody knocked on my door without a warning, I would just go into this complete panic. And again, after that experience, I was thinking, God, I mean, how stupid was I? I mean, I could, I could have avoided all of it if I just acted by acted on basic dignity because it was obvious what he was doing. He was threatening me. He was threatening to do something horrible. He was hinting at my immigration for a long time. I mean, I could have, at the very least, I don't know, go to police, tell them that he's abusive, which he was. But what I did when the neighbors called the police at some point as he had his hands on my throat, the police came and I said, everything is fine. Because he was begging me to, you know, he was a lawyer. He was afraid to lose his license. He was like, oh, but my parents, but but you can't do this to me. Please, 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 please. I will never do it again. So the classic, right? So I told them it's fine. So objectively, I acted ridiculously stupidly because seriously, I mean, all the signs were there. I didn't have to go look for them. On the other hand, my internal logic was that it was too hard to admit to the fact that strangely, my reality, reality of a smart person, as I perceived myself, it was not normal at all. And I was in a situation of being abused. And it took that amount of hardship and that amount of complete pain and ridiculousness and absurdity for me to actually admit to myself that, that that's what was happening. So again, for years, I thought, what did I do? Like why on earth, out of all people, out of my no, all normal friends, I had to go through all this crap that is completely like out of the movie, just crazy, unreasonable, horrible, painful, like why, what did I do? And then when last year came, all of a sudden it made sense because I started recognizing the signs coming out of like official messaging, television news, the same kind of vibe that I was getting from my abusive ex. And maybe the messages themselves were very different because it's a different topic and you know an entirely different area. But the vibe was undeniably similar because the television was telling me, 
well, if you have any apprehension, apprehensions, then you should just like they're ridiculous. They're not intelligent. You should ignore them. You should not touch other human beings because it's dangerous. You should not like, get in close contact with other human beings because it's dangerous. And most importantly, if you have any suspicions or any apprehensions about your dignity, this is just ridiculous. And you're a bad person for having those. So that to me, like my past experience just did not allow me to go very deep into that because you know, after a couple of weeks, whatever, maybe a month or so, I was freaking out just like everybody else because nobody knew like the disease, what's going to happen. I think everybody was in the same boat. But then as I started noticing logical fallacies and abusive messaging techniques, I was like, wait a second. I've made this mistake once and it cost me dearly. It, it, I really, I know the price that people pay for that. And because I know that, I wish I could be in denial. I wish I could go with the flow. It would be much easier, but it's almost like it's impossible because I already know what happens if you do that. And the price was too high to do it again. So that is what I mean by the face of the machine and how seeing it helps people, I think, recognize when the machine is trying to get at you again. Because I am thinking if I did not have that experience, I mean, who knows how I would be reacting. I mean, it's true that I've been doing research into big tech and transhumanism and their theology and their philosophy and their business agendas and all that. I was doing that research. And that was another factor that when the pandemic hit, I recognized in all the health measures, the things that I've been researching and writing about or thinking that could happen sometime in the distant future. So that was another part. But if I did not have that completely harsh and very, very strong dramatic experience, who knows if I would talk myself into thinking that things are okay and it's just like, no matter what was happening before this was different. I don't know. I don't have an answer to this question, but I do see that people who, luckily for them, have never, have never seen that face of the machine that dramatically, I don't think they have an emotional motive to go and go out and look for some kind of well, paranoid quote unquote explanations. Because if the reality is what I think it is in terms of the reform that is being forced upon us, it's pretty horrifying. And accepting that suddenly we went from free citizens of a Western country, like given that nothing is perfect ever and life is not perfect, but overall, like we have the freedom, we have a lot of margin in which we can you know, live our free lives more or less the way we choose. But all of a sudden that no longer exists. That is a very dramatic change of self-perception. And that is difficult. And I think that the human path is such as people usually do wake up to reality, but the question is how far into crap we get and then how we can heal uh, each other and ourselves and help and like what happens then. So and that is the dilemma. I, I think that, I mean, a real, basic way to separate the um 
point of view or, or, or just what the, the boundaries of what people who see the machine from whatever reason, however they've come there, from people who do not see that and who are attached to the everything's normal, relatively normal right. mindset. I think that um, I think that the basic idea, and you can say if you share this, and Jason can say if he shares this, is that there is um, whatever has happened in the past year and a half, and what, how however however it started, it has been either engineered on the one hand potentially, or simply manipulated on the other hand in order to advance an agenda which people use different words to refer to i think fourth industrial revolution is probably the most common concept to in order to advance an agenda a shift in essentially how the world works and I don't know if this is uniformly across countries, but certainly in um, any large political system to a situation in which um, there's much more control, more totalitarian and um, a shift in how money works uh, to something where people are more dependent upon a system that is providing for them and more vulnerable to having to behave in a certain way to get what they need to survive. Would you say that that is more or less the idea that people are, that I kind of see that as being the similarity in the people who are concerned about what is going on and say, something's not right here versus, and versus the people who just say, oh, you know, that's crazy. Why would that be happening? That's paranoid thought there. Well, you're bringing up good points. I think in general, I can say that I agree with precisely what you just said. And again, there's so much to say in response. I think the psychological conundrum, let me start from afar. Uh, well, my friend, Stephen Newcomb, who is a Native American scholar, he has spent many, many years writing about the doctrine of domination, I mean, which started as doctrine as discovery, but probably the more, the more accurate name is the doctrine of domination. And I think it would be honest to admit that we live inside the domination system, all of us, and we have lived inside of it for a couple thousand years at the very least. But I think the perception greatly varies depending on where in the domination system you are positioned at the time as you are, you know, having your opinions or perceptions, because there have been up until a certain point, at the very least, for the past few decades, there were a lot of comfy spots inside the domination system for people in the West, like middle class, so that, I mean, yes, there was there all this manipulation with oil and prices and all those things, but they're happening in the background. And it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, for which, again, I cannot fault people necessarily because that's how we all are. I mean, we just made this way. We care a lot more about what's happening in the immediate circles. 
And with that, working on the back of the machine, there were, uh, there were lots of very comfortable spots. And market, the market worked to some degree, you know, within a certain range. And for that reason, because it did provide for a comfortable living for many people in the West, I think it's easy to get complacent. Again, it's almost, it's not a fault. It's if, if that, that is what your life is. And if you genuinely work, you build a business, you're comfortable, even very comfortable, then everything is good, right? And so I think what is happening right now is that the domination system, that machine, it is reassigning the label of who is food. Because for the past few decades, food was maybe people in developing countries, the countries that we start wars against, maybe like certain demographics more than others in the United States. And now all of a sudden we're all food. And I think that's a very difficult psychological transition because if we go into the fourth industrial revolution, actually something that I was thinking about uh, a lot lately, which is what I pointed you at that, that article and surrounding subjects. So if we look at how that system treats the land, for instance, so the land or animals, uh, it is a resource, right? So I mean, just go and exploit, and I'm using this word without any isms in mind, because I don't think isms help very much at all. So, but just general psychology. So you, you see land, it's a resource. You can extract things out of it and you can milk it as much as possible. And then you move on elsewhere. So you live a pile of crap and then you move elsewhere. Then if you see a land rich with resources occupied by somebody else, if you think about it as a resource that I would love to have and extract and do whatever with it for myself, then those people are definitely a nuisance and how dare they be there and use it however they wish. So depending on the historical moment and the circumstance, you go wage a war or you do some chicanery, you make a deal with their leader and the leader then betrays own people, betrays own people. So some kind of a dynamic where you kind of just push those other people off that resource and you use it for yourself. So I think what happened recently, or you know, what became visible recently, because it has been in the works as a uh, blueprint for a while, is that our bodies, our human bodies became a new frontier. We are the new land. And if you think about it, half metaphorically, half not metaphorically. So if they say uh, data is a new oil, well, oil was extracted out of land. Look at what, in what state the land was left after oil was extracted. So data is extracted out of us, majorly out of other places too, but say out of people. So that's not very promising to our well-being and future. And if our bodies are literally the new frontier, and here comes the concept, of course, of the internet of bodies, which I'm sure your listeners are familiar with, but if the body is packed with various devices of different sizes and with different technologies, whether it's nano gel or whether it's a literal implant, or, you know, they have the technology, the military have been working on it for a while. 
And so we are literally kind of land in this case, because all those devices, they're getting our data, they're trying to read us, they're trying to write to us, and they're trying to milk us in every possible way. Like for instance, right now, the situation with quote unquote boosters that are going to come at us probably, you know, for as long as we can take them and be alive. And the point is if our bodies are to be mined, if our bodies are a market and a platform, then surely a person who does not need products or implants is an insult to the biotech entrepreneur because then they can't make money on that person. And then it's kind of like an indigenous person sitting on a piece of land. How dare he? Because if I want that resource, how dare he sit on that and prevent me, block my way of extracting from the piece of land. Similarly, people who do not need a million of implants in their bodies and who do not want to join that internet of bodies party, they are the enemy of corporate profit. At the very least, there could be a million other darker interpretations, but I think they're not in conflict. At the very least, they're in the way of corporate profits. And I think this is the part that people need to understand viscerally. It's not just greed, it's an entirely different paradigm where the sovereignty of human body is no longer even a thing. Because if you're land, if you're food, if you're a resource, and if your sole purpose of existence is to provide some kind of a physical uh, vessel for them to mine in different ways, then it is extremely unlikely that it's going to be to, to end well for you. And it doesn't matter how poor or rich you are and what's happening right now. And in the very best scenario, it's just going to fail. Like that entire thing is going to fail, not work somehow, technology is not going to work and they're going to give up. But even so, they'll cause a lot of havoc. So to me, I think it's extremely important that people realize that we are no longer in the eyes of whoever is trying to pull that reform off. We are no longer citizens, we're objects. And metaphorically speaking, it has been always true, but we no longer have the literal protection. Thank you.
something that I noticed early on in um, the uh, COVID scenario that from the very start, there was no discussion, no concept of one's own ability to fight an illness. You know, it was all looked at as you are um, just complete vulnerability. People, people's sense of invulnerability of, of vulnerability was so stoked and fed. And I tend to be, I'm, I'm very much a warrior. I'm a worst case scenario kind of person. And I've lived, you know, it's fear and anxiety my entire life. And so for, for kind of the first time I was confronted where with a situation where I wasn't the one who was scared. You know, I, I had a different paradigm. I had an idea of free natural immunity, as you talk about, just a, you're, okay, I have a body, I have things that I can do to support my health. I have um, different, um, I can research and find different ways to mitigate, mitigate if I do get sick, I will order some things in advance. So I have things for myself and my family. You know, I prepare and prepare and keep myself and my family healthy. But all, that, some of that was my point of view. And all around me, people were having this sense that no, no, there's nothing. There's nothing you can do. COVID will come. COVID's going to come. And then, oh, oh my gosh, you know, then you could just die. You know, and I'm thinking, you know, no, that's, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't, that's, I mean, yes, people can just die. I had a, a years ago, a child in um, the neighborhood that I was in, a 12-year-old died of the flu, healthy 12-year-old, you know, very, very unusual. But yes, that can happen, you know, and you can get hit by a bus and you can get struck by lightning and all sorts of things. But suddenly everybody was afraid of these very slim chance. I mean, this is it. This is what I specialize in, being fearful of the very slim chance of dying, you know, from various things that I'm just afraid of. And suddenly I see all these other people exhibiting that behavior, which I know in myself is um, unreasonable, but sometimes, you know, I, I can't help, I do my best to contend with. Um, but seeing it in others and be, feeling myself being the reasonable one all of a sudden in my own family, seeing all these family members and the face masks and the, just thinking, wait, have you read anything about this? Have you researched anything about this? Are you, have you totally lost control of your own sense of 
natural immunity, of ability to be healthy, of the body's ability and tendency to heal itself. And it was just, it was just amazing. And, and I see so clearly, I saw so clearly how this was being so actively promoted and so successfully promoted so that all of a sudden you have a world or at least you know this country full of people who have are feel totally vulnerable they're no longer no longer of any sense of a healthy body they just have a sense of um being dependent upon a deus ex machina in the form of a vaccine or a miracle drug or whatever it takes and it just it seemed ludicrous to me and it still seems ludicrous that people who i i i've never seen them behave as i have historically and be afraid of you know something that's a very small chance of killing them being afraid they're going to die but this is everywhere that's the pandemic to me it's a pandemic of vulnerability and fear that's been crafted and stoked by what I, you know you can call it the press the media the government who knows but it's all it's all these things working in uh some sort of terrible harmony that's that's created this and yes, I think that your point about it being that this is that this is the point to put us in this place where we, we become completely vulnerable and oh, sorry, that was my dog. We complete we come become completely vulnerable to the point that our bodies are, as you say, the platform, right? And we have to rely upon the product, the intervention, the drug, the specialist for our survival. And this is, I, I see people's minds turning like this, you know, from the point of, well, children need vaccines, of course, just to be healthy and to keep each other alive. And we need these big medical centers that have suddenly been built everywhere all of a sudden, you know, and it's just this, it's just something where we are no longer, we are no longer an individual um, operator. That, a um somebody who's in charge of ourselves we are something to be acted upon and something that want is being made to feel we need to be acted upon we need that help we need that intervention and i think this is the shift this is a shift that's happened and it is it is heartbreaking and mind-boggling that the people who i know and love and care about are are suffering from what I would consider to be um, a complete um, uh, a complete change in uh, their own paradigm of the world and of themselves. I feel the same way. That is the biggest biggest point of suffering for me because, you know, well, I I come from Moscow. I am used to the concept that. People upstairs essentially don't care about me or try to eat me. That's just kind of the default for me. So it might be unpleasant, but you know, such is life. But 
seeing how the people who I love and care for and respect and just love with all my heart, how they have been essentially, they've fallen prey to abuse. And they're almost denying the concept of the abuse. I mean, they're almost defending the concept of the abuser because it's just they internalized it too deeply thanks to all stress and it's it's really killing me because then of course it's you know logic doesn't really work doesn't matter so then it's a matter of i don't know what i think and i'm thinking okay so what happens and this is something that really bothers me so now we have all those boosters for example i mean they're working right now for similar technology for the flu and for the for the plague for the, for the plague somebody is working on the on, on the shot for the plague the dangerous disease we, we have to think about right the, the actual plague and uh for the hiv so i mean like clearly it's not about our health and clearly it's not about medicine and it's just one of the vehicles to platform us even further so that we're not even human beings anymore and so then at which point do people wake up so they're told now they need a booster then of course there's going to be another just for this one and then as everybody's immunity is becoming worse because it's likely then people will indeed start suffering from all sorts of things and then they will need cures quote unquote or precision medicine mechanisms for their weakened immune system and it with it at which point will the logic kick in that it's actually because they're dealing with the consequence and it's not the natural state of a human being? And are we going to go into a place where, say, a generation, a generation later nobody remembers how to exist or like some divine interference will happen and it's just that like something happens, people will wake up like I most certainly pray for the, you know, for the kindest awakening, because we do need an awakening on, on a sensory level. And it's about medical things. It's about the whole background system of treating us as platforms and data bundles. And it's all, you know, different sides of the same reform. So I don't know, like, why, why do we as human species have to go through those reforms? Because there was a time when it was the Crusades or various forced conversions. And it is very similar, I think, what is happening right now. It's just they have more technology to monitor us and more advanced ways technologically to abuse us. But it's the same thing. It's just somebody comes up with a crazy idea of taking the freedom away from people and telling them how to be, how to think, how to feel, how to pray, how to do like everything and steal their property and their sovereignty in the process. And how crazy is it that we, the people of today are living through a similar reform right now? It is crazy. You, you talk about um, in that, um, the war on free natural immunity, you talk about uh, what are we to the trillionaires and you brought up four points and you said the first and second were points that were more from the past. So the first being we're clay from which to mold their reality. The second being that we're labor. 
And then we move into the third that we're consu consumers. So we, we labor either in the fields or the factories, and then we purchase what's been, what we create. And then you say that the fourth is a relatively new thing and that's <clears throat> that we're a natural resource. And that being the data bundles, uh, perhaps for impact investing, you know, which is something that Alison McDowell talks about very, very thoroughly. Um, but also, and I don't know if this is something that you have uh, any thoughts on, this is something that Alison has been talking about much more recently. And there's been a lot more chatter about um, the idea that human beings might be generators, actual generators of energy that can be harvested um, and conducted. And you know, the idea being that perhaps that's via graphene, either within clothing or within bodies. So this idea that we are actual harvestable generators of pure energy and that the technology has perhaps gotten to the point where that can be harvested the idea of humans being batteries well i mean the, the patents have existed for that like for some time before the pandemic that's not new uh and that is actually interestingly considered green energy so uh, as I was at some point doing research into that human battery idea, which was, gosh, like a year ago, a year and a half ago, I don't, I don't remember. So I don't remember the exact technical details, but uh, that was filed under green, green sources of energy. They're, they're innocent ways, like, for instance, kinetic energy from people tapping on a surface, like people walking or doing their normal thing. And then from that surface, it actually generates energy. And there are also uh, ways to harvest energy from like, kinetic activity of the body. Then we all know, I think, about that Microsoft patent uh, where uh, undefined uh, physical bodily activity can be translated to crypto. And it's a very broad patent. It doesn't say like what kind of device, what kind of interface. But uh, we can at the very least say that factually, the powerful and wealthy minds are thinking about it. And I think that if it is sold to us, which I would not put past them at all, it's going to be sold as something warm and fuzzy. Because if you just come to the people right now and tell them, hey, how about we turn you into a battery. I think most people will say, nah, you know, thank you, no thank you. But if it's gradual, and of course, in a situation where so somebody say it's, we've gotten into dystopia full on and it's totally UBI, you know, like blockchain, like that, 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 that the darkest scenario where there's no way out for a normal person. And so there's financial dependency. And then they are told literally like slaves, okay, you harvest, you, you, you produce energy physically, you do whatever it takes, like whatever technological mechanism. It could go that way, probably won't last very long because people tend to rebel quickly against like really harsh violence. I mean, it lasts for some time, but then people rebel. So 
if it's tacit, more something like, here's something I'm using, you can get tokens, points, and you just do this little cute thing that you do anyway. So I mean, there's so many scenarios. I think at this point, it is premature to, we can't really predict what's going to happen because there's so many unknowns in this situation. We can talk about plans. We can talk about like white papers, policies, and like what's out there in terms of technology, in terms of verifiable intention. I try to stay optimistic in a sense that it's not written in stone yet. And of course, if we look at human history over the course of, you know, past centuries or a couple of thousand years, every transition brought some kind of a deprivation of freedom. So if, if we compare, you know, looking back two centuries, like if we compare I mean, we, we can see how people were free and now we're sitting in the office, like, you know, with poor postures, eating GMO foods. And rich people do for fun what people used to do all day, like be in nature and, you know, hunt. I mean, all, all those things, like things that were just life. Now it's rich people's fun. So, but when it's gradual and we don't look at it from 16 million feet above, then it's kind of tolerable and people can tolerate small increases of crap and i know that i went far away from your original question but i'm just trying to think about it existentially because we don't know what's going to happen like they are trying to milk us for anything we got from our bodies to our minds to our thoughts and if we leave it up to the wealthiest folks of this planet, they will do anything. I mean, like they've done it in history before, right? So they'll, they'll do anything. They'll mine us for energy, the technology is there. But I think that as far as the pushback and the solution, it comes to doing things that are the opposite of transhumanism and that are the opposite of extractive controlling paradigm. And I know that those words can mean many different things and they've been thrown around a lot. So let me go to and try to describe my sensory perception of that. So control, I've been thinking about it a lot. So the whole thing about transhumanism and for that matter, that system of domination, even without the technology is the need to strictly control the environment. The need uh, comes from an internal, like an internal hunger. And from my observation, that is subjective, but this is what I have observed so far in life. So if a person is genuinely in harmony internally, like you can say with the universe, with nature, however, you know, whatever lofty words you, you want to use. But if there's this sense of spiritual meaning that cannot be obtained intellectually it cannot be obtained through a form of religion necessarily it is just something that gets mysteriously developed you know in this mysterious life that we have so when that feeling is present then there's still competition i mean like kids still play 
it's still fun to compete and see, you know, but it's more of like you don't have the impetus to go ahead and abuse others' spirits. It's just like, it just doesn't occur to you. There's no need. And then if that internal thing is broken, say if it's broken in one person in an overall healthy community, then those healthy people will likely be able to come and help that person heal in some way. Most likely, obviously, you know, there's no guarantees in life at any point. But now, however, we're in a situation where a lot of people have their internals very broken. It's, you know, generational trauma. And that is a lot harder because if everybody has this unsatisfied need to be accepted, unsatisfied need to have their gift embraced, then people are just yanking each other for that acceptance. And that's kind of the world we live in. Then when it comes to the horrible, the extremes, the darkness and the transhumanist agenda, then it's kind of that extreme of that same emotion. Because like, for instance, when I was married to an abusive man, one thing that I have learned is that his suffering from lack of control was very sincere. That is what drove him to do absolutely awful things. But that, that was coming from a feeling in which he could absolutely not tolerate that feeling of not having control. So for instance, he couldn't find the remote, the television remote. He would like go crazy. Like there were times he would just like stop, like bang on the closet and like go find me the remote. And his suffering was authentic. He was not just making it up. But if you are a proverbial transhumanist, in a high chair and you feel so scared and so like there's no meaning right there's no there's no spiritual happiness so then you have to control resources and you're terrified that either another predator or the peasants will take it away from you and then you're left with nothing so the way i think about it if we compete with those people with a high level, like high chair, extremely wealthy, extremely powerful human beings who are motivated by their own internal crap. If we compete with them using their toolkit, linear, scholastic, you know, so, okay, so we understand their game, then what? So far, they're just pushing through. They're just pushing the entire year and a half. We know what happened. It made no sense logic wasn't anywhere near and nonetheless they're just pushing and pushing further and pushing further and people are getting like hijacked essentially so we cannot compete with them with money we have nothing in them they have all the money in the world they have media they have controls they have the most expensive psychologists they have well everything really in that linear realm what they don't have is courage in the most sensory meaning of it, not as a slogan. But I think that essentially, if we exterminate that little inner transhumanist in ourselves, then I think it can feed some kind of a chemical reaction that nobody can even understand, but it will somehow feed into the world. And we won't feed their ghosts, speaking metaphorically. And I think we can do a lot in the internal life. Like for example, 
my my personal my personal uh what i'm dealing with you know it's not easy i i'm i'm supporting my mom she's staying with me she has her own trauma she has her own you know things that are not always pleasing to me because you know she has her own hang-ups and in the course of her when she came to visit and she got sick and i essentially have been she has been staying with me ever since and i'm an artist i'm a free you know i'm used to having all the space having all the you know i need it i need to stretch and do my thing and now all of a sudden i have this thing that was i was not necessarily looking for that kind of a limitation but obviously no she's my mom that's sacred that doesn't even need to be discussed i mean like that's a given but also some things to me are so just irrationally like like why create all this trouble for yourself you see you know like all the people coming from the soviet union they were raised in a particular way like they were raised with the idea of struggle like turning everything into struggle and it's very it's been very very difficult for me but to me that is a part of my do, trying to do things right and if i make a mistake trying to fix it that has been one aspect of my fighting against the transhumanism in addition to art and writing and trying to explain the big picture and doing all the things that are like proper philosophy and education and you know but th there's also this invisible human thing that i'm doing and I'm extremely imperfect at that. It's like every day. It's 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 not it's not easy. It is noble. I want to do it with my most passionate heart. I want to do what's right. I want to, and it's this pull between me remembering how to be, you know, healthy and free and artistic, and that's very happy for me. And yet, I can't afford it quite or at all because now i have to adapt to a very different set of requirements psychological requirements that my mom has and that is my human thing and i think that that kind of thing is a huge huge part of how we stand to this big dark monster that is looking at us because they don't know how to do that they don't know how to interact with people outside of logic outside of just transactional like you give me this i give you that you cause me pain i'm going to just kick you out instead of trying and there, there are circumstances where it's needed i mean my abusive ex would be a good example but it's also you know what they don't have and they what they don't want us to have is the sensory wisdom where we act not based on a formula not based on you know if this then that but we just try to dance with this mystery and feel clueless at times i certainly you know often and through that allowing you know the spirits to guide you through that we come to a place we can't even know imagine and learn things that we didn't know and become our new selves. And I think that is probably, well, that is something that people have been doing forever since we've been around. This is just human existence. But I think by doing that and admitting to the fact 
that maybe we have no idea. And this situation is confusing. And yes, it's scary. And yet, because it exists, there must be meaning. And maybe we need to do something that our ancestors want us to do. Maybe there's just some meaning, some love that we need to just squeeze out of ourselves, like find it, pray for it, and get through it that way. If that makes sense. That does that does make sense. And I'm thinking about your your use of the word transhumanist and um the idea perhaps that we can equate or at least um compare transhumanism to disembodiment just the idea because i think a sort of idea of transhumanism now would say okay cyborg you know something that is human plus interventions that are technological but you think of these trends that these interventions are something that's adding to the human but I think of them, I think, as something that is taking away, eating, fighting away, like the little bites of a shark out of the human and, and disembodying, because you are putting the human more into um, a virtual realm that, as you point out, is transactional and linear and is uh, has to do with logic and the goal goal-driven mentality. I want this, so I'm going to do that. And this is going to get me there. And you've done this to me, so I'm going to do this back to you. And you're, it's disembodied and it's also disconnected from something mysterious, as you say, which is also part of the body, I think. And it's, um, I think that that is very much at the heart of what, um, where we are being encouraged to head, the direction that we are being encouraged to head in, and that people are just are taking for granted that okay, yes, this is this is progress, this is the road to progress, and this is where it leads, and okay, now we're on a road with virtual worlds and. Um, uh artificial interventions and this will all be for our good and this will augment our human experience and make it um extend our bodies or extending our bodies into virtual realm or just into something farther than what we can what we can do when you know, you are in your apartment stretching yourself, but maybe not quite as far because your mother's there. Yeah, no, you know, you could go further than that, Tessa. You just have to uh, give in to the um, transhumanist uh, philosophy and agenda. But I, I, I'm curious too about your your idea about how our ancestors may be, may be calling us to uh, to to change this or to pull back from it or to mitigate is there something more that you feel about that about how the ancestors could be involved with perhaps what you might see or i might see or jason might see as a solution or at least a, a way out or a way forward 
uh, conquests and forced conversions from traditional societies and religious that called indigenous and there are many different words for that but the old ways people lived for millions of years it so happened that they had in place ways of developing people's sensory ability and in general terms and obviously every culture had their own personality and own strengths and own special skills and all, all that but in general from at least from what i know it's there were ways in place that would put people like force people to develop certain sensory uh, abilities in a way that it would be significantly less tempting to do the crappy things that we're doing today and not just by virtue of moral that is intellectual but just creating a harmonious state on the inside and of course that has to be a disclaimer because people are always it's always a you know a struggle there's always lots of things happening and that's a lifelong process of maintaining the balance it's not just the one time and then a free ride but nonetheless so when various uh either local leaders or invaders depending on the culture and time and place and history they specifically were very deliberate uh, in insisting that that kind of culture, that kind of spiritual practices, they should not be practiced and they should be replaced with something else. So that in itself, and again, with a disclaimer that people have a gift of eventually putting their own goodness into any system they have, which is why every belief system, every religion has been used for good and for bad, depending on, on the people who feel it, who practice it. But that by virtue of banning let's say somebody comes in and say you cannot use this drum because whatever it's immoral sinful horrible uncivilized and maybe that drum was something that awakened the senses beyond just communicating to your whatever fellows so by making empowerment or tools of empowerment spiritual empowerment illegal they make people more vulnerable, right? And my, by making people more vulnerable, it's a lot easier to eat them. Like, for, for instance, there's a story, it's told by, uh, there's a Dagara elder called uh, Maladoma Some. I'm a huge, huge admirer of his work. I mean, he's, he's really brilliant. And so he was, in, in one of his books, he wrote a story how uh, in his village, in his Dagara village in Africa, uh the french were you know the french missionaries came in and so they offered to the villages at, at some point that they they promised to buy their crop like their future crop if the villages bought their fertilizer so they bought the fertilizer some of them bought the fertilizer of course the land didn't like the fertilizer so, so there were no crops they ended up with this purchase and debt and no crop but that is kind of an act of tricky self-betrayal where you go oh please let go of your defenses that 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 feeling that you have that maybe there's some scam let go of it don't listen to it just listen to me here's a deal and then usually you know like it can be tempting so if people do part with that inner voice and do decide to just like for kicks so or out of peer pressure or whatever just try out this thing despite what the inner voice is telling them they usually end up in a situation 
that is not very advantageous. So in that sense, keeping the history in mind and applying it to the current situation, I think it can be helpful because, for instance, with this push right now for the whatever, for the medical interventions, there are many opinions about that and many angles, but just the virtue of bullying factor, that makes it a little bit suspicious. Like, why this fervor? Why, why, why do you insist so badly that everybody has to do this thing? Why? Because it's very unlikely that all of a sudden all politicians in the world decided to be honest and caring. It's just not very probable. Possible, not likely. So why? So are they by any chance trying to trick us into something just like before? You know, the invaders or the local helpers of the invaders were trying to trick people into different novel things, saying it's progress. Are we in a similar situation? So like, that's a good question to ask yourself, right? Well, just the idea of being, um of losing touch with your sense of um, your own intuition and how that's, how that, how we're being encouraged. I think that the more we have external tools to distract us, the less we are aware of our internal guidance or just, I mean, just our internal feelings of something that would be called a sixth sense sometimes, or just an intuition. There's so much that is, um, there's so much that's laid on, layered on. It's just thinking about my, uh, one of my sons want asking me earlier today, he wanted to, um, he want, somebody is visiting who has Pokemon Go on their device. And, and I'm just, I'm, I'm so against this idea conflating the real world mm -hmm. with the virtual world that is overlaid on it. And the idea that, okay, you're going to look on the screen and it's going to show you some sort of representation of the world that's surrounding you. And, oh, there, and now in the screen, I see a Pokemon there and, and it's, and I feel it's the same way with minecraft and games like that i just i'm it's a hard no for me for for all of these things and i'm at a bit of a loss to describe what it is to in a way that makes sense to my son why i'm saying no that just doesn't make me sound like an uh, unreasonable crazy mother but because it, the reasoning is very it's, it's very complicated and it's uh there's just there's too much history to it and too much to be able to really convey to a child at this point but it seems to me an example of something that is it's just it takes away it's again it's another shark bite out of your own self and your own your body's own capacity to know its surroundings when you're being you're being told that okay here's something that's showing you and it, obviously it's he knows that it's not there's not 
really a quote unquote Pokemon character there, but in a way there is though, because it's the Pokemon character is part of a created world. And here this, this device allows him to see that. This device is extending his ability to dwell in the real world by revealing something that even though it's a story is there and he can see it in the same way on Minecraft, he's interacting via avatar with other people's avatars. And even though he knows that's not him and it's not really those other people, it's still participating. And I, I think the more we have, the more we have that, the more we get used to these little augmentations, the further we get from just our ability to be, I mean, could he, could I be in some way training him to see actual entities that are actually surrounding him, you know, as somebody who is I don't know, first practicing Shintoism or something like that? Could I be training him to be sensitive to things in the environment rather than just looking on a screen to see contrived characters in a contrived algorithmic space? And it's, um, you know, I feel that everything more that we have offered, especially that other generations have offered to them, just takes away more and more. And I'm sure we ourselves, because we're we three are roughly the same generationally. You know, there's a lot that we had when we grew up that took away many things that our ancestors had that were, that gave them more of a sense of their own self and their own body and their own, um, their own senses. Yeah, I think I, I see it as a there's this gradual march away from from our connection, from our ability to to hear and communicate with our real surroundings. And that's being that's being replaced by this idea of something that is algorithmic, something that's created and contrived by human thought, by logic and linear thinking. And it's, it's so stupid, it's so childlike. And people don't see it like that. They see it as complicated and technological and something extensive. There's a very, very deep disagreement that these things extend our senses. I think they handicap them. And I think that's the, the place that we're, that we're in now and the place that we or some people are trying to say, at the very least, go no further and ideally turn around and get, get to something that is more of our original, our original uh, place in the scheme of things. Well, your Pokemon Go analogy is very telling. I think that prior to 2020, that was uh, the strongest vector so to speak to get us into this strange world used by big tech and actually i remember a few years ago i wrote a story called something like surveillance and entertainment park surveillance and surveillance and amusement park 
about people getting tricked. And I was that was a metaphor of an online social platform, how there was this data surveillance amusement park with all sorts of little tricks and d'oeuvres and models and people were dragged into that or tricked to, to come there and have parties. And then those who didn't want, who, who kind of smelled the rat and who didn't want to come eventually, they were all alone and then begrudgingly they also joined. So, but that was a story from several years ago and that was before 2020. I think in 2020, they got a little more blunt about what they wanted. And uh, it is interesting that she mentioned uh, Shintoism because just the other day, uh, somebody sent me the article from 2019 in the Atlantic written by Eric Schmidt of Google and Kissinger and uh, somebody else, I forget the third author. And so they were actually trying to use this analogy of our virtual companions being kind of like, you know, Shintoism. And I thought, can, oh, can I swear on your podcast? I thought the fucking nerve, I mean, seriously, they have the fucking nerve. They it can, it even can come out of their mouth. But so that's what they're aiming for. And I don't know if they, in their heads they truly believe they can replace the mysterious world. I mean, they cannot be that stupid. I mean, I don't know. I, I think it's very hard to be that stupid. Are they just trying to sell it to the peasants? Like, who knows? I mean, what's in their head? I don't want to know. So, but yes, they are trying to replace what has historically been, you know, the place of the divine, however one wants to think about it, the divine, the spiritual, depending on the belief system. They are trying to divorce people from their natural connection to that mystery. And that would kill two birds with one stone. That would make people a lot less powerful. And that would also turn people into a resource fully. Because again, the battle is not new. The, the ambition is not new. It has been happening for centuries in different ways. With direct violence, with tricks, with divide and conquer, with carrots and with whips and with all sorts of things. But the, the theme seems to be recurring. It's the same theme. They, they, they're trying to, out of either own brokenness, out of their own lack of understanding what life is about, they are trying to make everybody else as clueless as they are, but also underneath. So they want the people to be as clueless as they are about what life is about, but also underneath in that linear brainy logical system. And I think if we look at it this way, it's maybe easy to understand or easier at least. And also addressing your story about your son and the game, it's almost like this entire story can be told the easiest as a children's story. As in, once upon a time, they were evil guys who wanted to take over people's bodies. I mean, that's a classic evil thing to do. So they wanted to take over people's bodies. They tried very hard, they bullied, they tricked, they lost. And now we know they were evil. So, and maybe in the next chapter, we need to heal them. So that seems very transparent when you look at it this way. Hmm. I think there's a missing element there. there. And there's a clue in how you summed it up with they want to take over our bodies. Because to me, that conjures up the, the idea of someone or something that doesn't have a body. 
and I think that so far as trying to make this coherent what's what's happening and what's been happening for thousands of years which I would say goes back to the Garden of Eden and you know, that was the beginning and that was the blueprint that's how far back it goes and that the, the indication there is also that we're talking about a metaphysical force which is we could say a deep deep psychological and deep psychological is 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 metaphysical uh, it includes the physical but it's beyond just the physical and the in that story too there was an element that entered into the physical paradise and tried to undermine it and subvert it and hijack it to its own ends and although i haven't really thought about it before it seems as though that element that anti-life deceptive element of the serpent was also trying to gain access to to eve's body to the body maybe because it didn't have a body i don't know but anyway that's where i was going that whatever it is that uh is driving this massive i would say beyond global i think it's cosmic i think it's i think it probably even extends beyond this planet but who knows it certainly is trying to get you know get beyond this planet um that there's an element in in it that's non-physical and um i mean you mentioned the ancestors and i think there's a dark side you're saying what the ancestors want and i would agree that there's a massive ancestral guidance impetus to get back to nature to get back to the body to get back to the ways of being and the ways of existing that have always worked for human beings well kind of contradicting myself in a certain sense they've never quite worked because they they got sabotaged at the very beginning but we were a lot closer you know way back when even though that was the the seed of rot was sowed at the very beginning it took a long time to fully manifest as it has today and become fully vis- visible um and so so yeah, the ancestors there is there's a portion or aspect of the ancestors that is i would say is is impelling me and guiding me and assisting me to get back to nature and back to the body and it's very grueling you have to be willing to suffer you have to be willing to to face reality on a moment to moment basis so i call it obeying the law of matter it's just relentlessly uh infuriating and frustrating and uh oppressive and but but a willingness to be there is the opposite of the transhumanist agenda which is to try and escape the body a willingness to be in the body and for the body to be in nature that's the positive ancestral thrust i would say the human the divine human imperative but i think there's a negative ancestral thing which is this generational trauma that has a there's a psychological fragmentation which <clears throat> um my sense is it's created generations of hungry ghosts of fragmented psyches that were never able to embody and so they were never able to die right they were never able to whatever it is that's supposed to happen when when we die didn't happen and so they're still around in some way and and that that they want our bodies and that behind that is something much much vaster and more mysterious which um is this anti-life agenda which is non-human 
I think there's a non-human anti-life agenda here and the transhumans and like we're seeing it being revealed and look, maybe the last thing I want to say because uh, I've been listening on for an hour and a half and really enjoying and getting a lot but it's also been bringing up a lot and one of the first things that came up for me was Tessa when you said that about this experience that we need to see the machine in order to uh, have a visceral sense of what, what's going on, what's hidden from us, with the nature of reality, the dark side of reality. Um, and I would agree, but I would say that we've all seen the machine, but that we were children when we saw the machine. And when we saw the dark side of reality as children, it was so traumatic, uh, it impacted us so viscerally and we didn't have anyone to talk to because we were surrounded by people who who had learned not to see it you know? and so we learned to do the same we learned to shut it out and to forget that we'd seen that we'd, we were born into into a kind of hell a very real hell generated over generations and um, so that I think we have that memory in our bodies of what reality is and I've been thinking about this recently because a very close associate ally uh, I found out had taken the mRNA vaccine and then I found out the backstory which is just what you'd expect that he just believed the hype and, and dismissed the critical research as you know, conspiracy theory or, or disinformation and it was very, it was very disturbing and very upsetting to me. And so it's because I, because we're allied in many ways, but clearly not per mentally, perceptually. Like his view of the world is completely different from my view of the world. So I've been asking myself question. I've asked myself, maybe my whole life, you know, why am I one of the only people who can see how bad things are, uh, and how why have I always been able to see it? And I think it's because partly was too main reasons to come to mind. One was I was born into an elite family who were social engineering, and although I didn't know it at the time, uh, and, and it involved kind, kinds of child abuse that I don't remember, but I'm pretty sure we're going on, um, somehow I had a very early training. Like I was supposed to be one of the social engineers, so some part of me has always known that, that there's... there's um, there's cabals that are manipulating reality but the other, the other thing is existentially I had a sense of unreality from a very young age and it tormented me and I could never get over it and never really got over it I just learned to, to push it out of awareness so even in my teen years I had a sense of being in hell and then in my early 20s I started doing the research and the kind of things that you've been talking about today although this was 30 years ago so it was nowhere near so advanced I, it was just ticking all the boxes and the last big box was, was ritual child abuse that really brought it all together that the children are being systematically traumatised, abused, tortured uh, satanically or in, occult, in an occult context that somehow made the whole picture coherent which we've, we've all been engineered at a deep soul psychological level and engendered with a false identity that will not see the reality that we're in because we're supposed to be batteries and if you say if we start to see it we're going to say no no matter how nicely it's sold to us viscerally we just 
you know, our, our, our cognitive faculties are sufficiently in tune with our felt sense of reality that we can a little bit perceive that we're in hell. And so we just say no. Um, but yeah, most people don't. Most people have just spent their lives pushing down that felt sense. And there's layers and layers and layers and layers. And there's so much investment in the system that we, they have become one with the system. And then, um, so you can't tell, you know, where you end and the system begins and you feel you can't, I can't possibly get rid of everything. I mean, that's the spiritual quest. But at a more mundane level, most people are not willing to give up everything and just return to nature. And I said, I'm screwed. That was going to be the last thing about the children, but maybe this will be the last thing that in the last few months and even the last couple of days when I've been working on the land, physically very grueling, I've been having that experience of going back to nature in a very visceral sense. And it, it's constant suffering and it's constant rage and that part of me that wants to control is constantly pushing up against what cannot be controlled, really, nature, although I'm, I am dominating it. And fulfilling the, you know, the biblical injunction to have dominion over the earth, and it's, it's so ironic because this is a pos- this is this is our, our life purpose, part of it. But I think part of the reason is is that, well, one nature does want our, ash to be shaped by us, the symbiotic relationship with nature, and two is the false identity of a satanic implant cannot bear, to be constantly confronted with na- with nature and the law of matter. Because it's so, it's so galling and it's so humiliating and it's so grounding and it just reduces that identity to, to powerlessness. Um, anyway, but as just to say that there in nature is the solution. I mean, while I'm wrestling and fighting with nature and cursing and swearing and cuts and bruises and wounds everywhere and. I am getting something done, I mean, extending the garden and killing loads of brambles and making space and freeing trees. But while it's being on, there's this little bird, like a thrush with a red breast, it's not a robin, but... And this bird, we've come to know each other because it, it, it come when I was having lunch and I'd feed it, but, but now it's coming when I'm working because I'm clearing the land and so it's able to feed from you know, find seeds and things that I'm uncovering. But um, we're very aware of each other, like we have a relationship. And uh, it's not bothered or threatened by my presence. And uh, so there in that environment and that context, with all of this going on globally, there's no threat. Like the more closely I'm relating to nature through my body and through my senses, the, the closer I am to reality, the easier it is to, to encompass what's going on globally and sociopolitically. And I have to say, I have no hope. I have no hope at all, sociopolitically, socially, societally. As a species, I don't think there's even any hope for us. And yet, and yet I, somehow a human being can be in nature and be in love with nature and it, it's reciprocal. And so I have that hope, like our, our spiritual meaning uh, can be uncovered. 
through this, through this. And, and to me, they're complementary. Like the more I look at the nature of hell, the more clearly I can see what I want and what is not hell. I can recognize, oh, look, it, it, it does seem to be, I mean, I've been using tools, not actually electrical tools, really, just hand tools. So there's a bit of technology, but it's pretty primitive. It's pretty primitive. So it's not total extreme, but I think for most people, last point, it is simply too extreme. The transition, to even think about it, might make the transition from what you're talking about, Tessa, with the conveniences and the complacency of society and all the, the pros that it's provided uh, at these hidden costs, to, to, to move to essentially being a naked human being in the wilderness. That's essentially what it means. Uh, it's, it's too much. And so then to think about the reality, the social reality, because that's what it would mean. Like the more we see about the nature of society, the more clear it becomes to me that the only solution is nature. And, and so the, the less willing people are to divorce from society and go back to nature, the less able or willing they are to see the nature of society and vice versa. Right? The less able they are to see the nature of society, the less they're going to be guided or impelled, compelled back to nature. So I think there's, it's, um, it's a sort of critical mass thing. I think there's fewer and fewer individuals who are willing to wake up, but those few are becoming more and more committed. But I think it's the less of us are waking up, the more committed we're becoming. Right? I don't see it as a growing awakening. I see it as a shrinking awakening because the commitment is, is more and more. Right? Reality is... The best thing you say about it is it's reality. <laughs> right? but, but to the mind, I mean, I told the story about the little bird because, like I say, there is something beautiful in here, the most lovely thing. But, but God, I mean, that, that's like a tiny ray of light in a vast, seething black labyrinth of uh, human and non-human generated hell over thousands of years that it's not like I can just go and hang out with the bird. I mean, I know I'm going, that bird, as I say, that's just the light at the end of this massive species tunnel. I don't know how long it is and how dark it's going to get. And I don't honestly know if any, any of us will survive. It could just, if I was the lucky one, it could just be me and the bird at the end of it. And I feel I have to be ready for that. And, and, and that, I mean, that is, is, is just a very, very hard road. Long and hard is the road out of hell, I think it's a saying. It's a very hard road.
black mountain above the lake the trees are dead and cold rolls off the water we wait for a fire we used to dance about the future because I think well most likely life will continue and we'll eventually go back to living normal like we did for thousands of years and maybe millions of years now how we get there is a big question and by logic that transition might be a bit 
you know, it could be disastrous or, you know, I don't know, predicting the future of such proportions, I don't think we possess that ability. But I do think that ultimately, life is about beauty and about love. And that is not just lots of words, which again, as words, it's been used plenty and thrown around and it can mean everything or nothing. But I don't know, it boils down to the feeling again. If I think nature and the divine and all those forces that support us and nourish us, they are there for us. And I think opening us to joy as the norm, as opposed to suffering as the norm, is a big thing. And like, for instance, I'm going to tell you, tell you something. Uh, at some point, uh, as a child, I encountered an Orthodox priest. And that was at the time where in Moscow, it was all atheism. So like anything, any religious figure was off limits. And that priest just started telling me about the sin and that we're born dirty. And now we spend the rest of the, our lives to especially cleanse ourselves from that sin. I was traumatized so badly. That was so wrong. That was so wrong. And I, and that has nothing to do with religion per se. I mean, I obviously fully respect everybody's, because we bring our heart to, into any, any way of believing and we practice it and we bring the utmost beauty through whatever system that we adopt. adopt. But that whole, like, to me also over the years, I thought so much about how in my culture, generation over generation over generation, they were trained to suffer. And at some, so at some, at some point centuries ago, somebody had to show up and tell the people that the way they lived in harmony was wrong. And then from now on, they had to live in struggle and suffering. And that proposition, proposition had to be defended with violence because nobody in their right mind would just accept it. So, and then generation after generation after generation after generation, people have to live with the idea that on the spiritual level, it's about suffering. And suffering can be useful as an experience. So it definitely has its place. It teaches us things. It teaches us to appreciate the joy, but I believe that life is about joy and joy in a spiritual way, not in a, like, I just want all the candy and, you know, nobody gets the candy because I want it. But joy is the fabric of it and love is the fabric of it. And, you know, sometimes there's obviously suffering and but I think the concept that has been given onto people, given to people in the past centuries is that it's kind of like suffering as helplessness. And that brings me back to the topic of control. This is something that I'm actually thinking and writing about because when there is a feeling of helplessness, we're not meant to feel helpless. We are meant to overcome challenges with spiritual strength with understanding the meaning of it, 
hopefully, you know, at least for the most part of it. And having trust in the mystery of life that, you know, we do have the, and that we matter, that our spirit actually deserves respect. It's not just some kind of like thing that has no control, no nothing, just meaningless, random. So we actually are to be respected. Our gifts are to be respected. Our feelings, you know, assuming that we have the responsibility to work through that and to, you know, be in balance. But our feelings are not just random something. They come, they mean something and they are to be dealt with. They're not to be suppressed. They're, they're to be dealt with in, in the most spiritually meaningful way. And in that that's important. That's what makes life beautiful. It's like, you know, there's this saying that is a trivial saying that if you do what you love for work, you never have to work for a day in your life. That kind of thing. It's things don't have to be hard for the fuck of it. I mean, sometimes they are and we deal with it. But the purpose of dealing with that is so that they're not hard anymore. It's not just to get attached to that suffering and to make the suffering our idol and then be proud that we can live with suffering and then give it to our children and insist that suffering is what's real life, what real life is, because that is the story of my culture where people have been conditioned generation over generation over generation that suffering is where it's at. Suffering is what real life is. So it's like, oh, you're a kid, you're still having a, like a good life, but wait until you grow up, you'll find out what reality is. And that means suffering and struggle. And that's so perverted and broken. And it took me many years to sift through that and to, and I, I put a lot, a lot of work into trying to figure it out and to connect like trying to figure out where that feeling that I was finding in myself as something that I didn't agree with, but I felt it anyway, where was it, where it was coming from? And it's generation from generation from generation from generation, pr probably going back centuries ago to where people were told that joy is illegal because the, whatever, somebody decided to say that God hates joy. And I think this is so, so wrong because we are of joy, we are of spirit and our challenges are important, we deal with them and then we celebrate and, and we love each other and we celebrate that mystery that life is. And again, in words, it could sound like ridiculous, lofty, whatever, like, you know, just words. But if, if, that's, if those words come from a feeling that is real, they mean something and, and happiness is possible we don't have to be helpless. We don't have to be miserable. And I don't know, maybe it sounds just like I'm just rambling, but to me, it's it means so much what I'm saying right now, because that has been a very important discovery for me personally, coming from a culture of martyrdom, where martyrdom was the right thing to do and where people would be proud that they've had a hard life. So they've managed to survive living through a hard life. So the kids should be trained to do the same way. And then, and I resented it. That's the reason I immigrated. I didn't immigrate for any kind of political reason. I was just, I was just too much misery. Like everybody was so miserable and so proud of it. And, and now that I'm seeing the same thing here as a vibe, like with struggle and all that, and beyond 2020, beyond the pandemic, beyond that nonsense, like that nonsense brought it back tenfold or hundredfold, but it started before that 
is so destructive. And even in the American culture, and I know, again, I'm going all over the place, but that story of a self-help guru who talks about like, oh, I was so miserable, I suffered so much, and like now for $999, I'll tell you how to not be like that. But there's this deification of suffering, which I think suffering is a very useful medicine in small amounts. It has value for sure, but it's not the point of living. And when the society trains us that suffering is the point of living, and that, that's what makes us human, then no good. The people who are telling us are not our friends. So anyway. I think, I think it's very much tied to your, um, your thoughts about control too, because when we have the, the sense, uh, when we are attached to control, you know, whether that's Jason out in his garden being vexed and bedeviled by all the things that are standing in the way of he and his hoe and getting something cleared or whatever it is, or whether that's um, my fear of death and worst case scenario accidents and knowing that I have no control over that for myself or my loved ones. Um, this attachment to, or whether it is the sense that uh, in the greater context of the world that, oh yes, we can control these things. We all control them through medicine and technology and uh, then eventually just putting things into virtual worlds where we have ultimate control because we control the narrative. This idea that control is a, a, an attainable goal that is the essence of suffering. And it's, I mean, I think it's, it's very much at the heart of what my suffering comes down to when, I, when I'm really feeling it and the fear, fear of being out of control. It's the gulf between what you want and what is just simply happening. And I think that it's an, an entire worlds, you know, as you say, Jason, maybe cosmic sickness, this idea that we can control and that that is something that is reasonable to um, aspire to. And it's, it's infected, it's infected everyone. It's infected everyone. It's, it's a, uh, it's just, it's it's what ties us together now, I think. And even within the people who have a sense of, okay, I'm a little outside of this, the control wells up. I, Jason, we were, we had a Zoom meeting earlier in the week and I think it came out, you know, both of us were, had been feeling it just, I, for me, it was in the sense of suddenly this the fighting between my two boys just became intolerable. And my reaction was, I am putting an end to this. I'm the parent, I'm saying no, and that's what's going to happen. And it was just this real, uh, it's just 
sense of like just control welling up in me. You know, and this is what what I what I will do, and so it shall be. You know, but not so it shall be in the sense of trying to connect with the with the energies of the universe and expressing this intent. But so it shall be in the sense that I will impose this, and that's it's. I think that's in a very very essential part of this the the will to impose one's own will and then the suffering that happens when the universe gets in the way of that you know and then the feeling of oh well we'll just go farther and farther and farther we'll just make our control our ability to control better by extending it extending it through technology but i, I don't know i don't know whether I think if that does go farther, that's a very bad road to go down because it brings us away from that connection. And the way out of that suffering I, is, cannot, be, cannot be gotten to by controlling more. That is digging oneself deeper into that particular pit the the way out of that suffering is just giving it up giving up the control giving up the feeling that you can even that it's even possible and just just seeing what happens then because i don't know i don't i've never really given that up myself i just feel that that's what i should be doing you know just let go let go of it that's where i think it has to lead i think that's the i think that that is the uh the other path or the antidote or it's just the other way or the only way perhaps but it's certainly not the way that is being um encouraged now well i think well the world like this world is not the material world i mean not just the material world and to me the way i think about it as of this second uh the need to control the environment to some degree i think it's normal and healthy as in if we didn't know whether we have anything for breakfast in a city environment or if i mean like that's just intolerable if I mean, some degree of stability is necessary for our well-being but i think when it comes to interaction with others it's almost like i mean we have to at every i think we have to in every in everything that we do always measure it by how spiritually sound it is and even ask for guidance because Sometimes, you know, in the similar circumstance, maybe at one moment one action is spiritually sound and another moment maybe it's not. So we have to really maneuver it as a dance on a sensory level. And I think it's important to have the respect for other people's souls. And that's regardless of whether they agree or disagree or what opinion they have. And just sort of figure that 
okay, there's this large picture, it's extremely complex, complex. there are lots of uh, spiritual things that are happening. And we are, like we're equal players. We are, we're spirits, we're, we're, we have our creativity and that's, you know, that's beautiful. And we have to do it in a sensible way. So we're not just little humble, like thingies that are like, they're just hanging around, like doing nothing. We have our thing to do. It's, it's respectable, it's dignified. And I think it's important to not fall into the trap of, oh, I'm just this little thing. And like, who am I? I'm just this nothing. We're not nothings, but we, as humans do not have the ability to understand the entire big picture. It's just our senses do not allow that. So dancing this dance of being creative in a free will manner, without fear, out of love, and at the same time, accepting the fact that, you know, we're working with, you know, lots of elements in this world. And it's on us to desire doing whatever we do in a spiritual sound manner and with love. I, I, I think all of that, even, even as a description, it is complicated and complex. As a reality, it's even, you know, it doesn't even, cannot be described with words. But I think this is what it boils down to. And it doesn't matter whether we're dealing with a horrible transhumanist situation right now, or just, I don't know, walking through a garden. So the principle applies. Like we are free, creative, you know, spirits and human forms. Although like when people talk like that, I'm like, oh, here we go again. So, but I am using these words in the most, in the purest sense. So this is what we are. And, and we have the ability, the gift, the, the intuition to try to do things right. And nobody is allowed to scare us and nobody is allowed to abuse us. And we just have to work with that again in this completely unformulated, mysterious way. And I think that's all we have. But it's also beautiful because we are participating in the creation. And that's, that's what we're doing, I think. I think that that's a good place to uh, a good place to end. <laughs> I think that that is uh, has some optimism, and it sounds like reasonable optimism to me. Well, I hope so because I mean the future looks very potentially weird. And it, that's extremely non-enjoyable, but I do think that there's meaning. And again, as a phrase, all of that is not necessarily convincing as just in a word said, but I think if it gets to the feeling of like where, you know what those words actually mean on a sensor level, then it makes a lot more sense. And then there's hope for us if there's, now hope for some joy in the future and a lot of it when this nonsense stops. I think it will pass. I think it will pass. When is a big question, but eventually sooner or later, I think it will pass.
Well, getting getting back to our own senses is essential. <laughs> essential senses. It's. Yeah. I think that that is. Um, that's the way. The way for everybody, and uh, as much as we can help that, encourage it. First of all, in ourselves, is the way to get to that joy that you talk about, and also. I mean, as you say, you can't really change other people's minds, but it's just maybe a matter of our own of our own grounding in our senses and in our connection with what is beyond ourselves and beyond our own concepts and beyond the narratives maybe that is enough to uh transmit to transmit to the world around us the people around us and oh, to give oh, sorry yeah to give a sense of a return of a return to our own um of our own power and our own uh integrity and reality which i think is evaporating for many people yeah I, I think that's really key is that um, to be in our senses and uh, not trying to change anything because it makes us uncomfortable or because it's causing us to suffer like relinquishing that that element of control because I mean, if we're all the way in our senses, we may perceive things very, very different. We would perceive things very, very differently. And we might perceive there was no problem at all. Right? So many of the, so much of our suffering is, is generated through our interpretation and our decision that things are not the way we want them to be, and etc., etc. So much of it's internally generated. Um, so I think, I think just landing in our senses and then seeing what what we want to do and want to change just from our senses maybe nothing that that um is a great example to set mm. you know i'm not i'm not really gardening because i don't like brambles or i want to have a perfect garden it's just that it's there and i bought this land it's, it's somehow it's just come to me i i i'd be much more comfortable, I suppose, just sitting on my computer and uh, writing books like I was in the past. But something has chosen this for me, and I find myself very actively engaged in bringing about change, but not because I don't like things the way they are, particularly. I, mean, actually, I really don't like brambles, but that's only because I'm, I'm going to war with them. If I left them alone, they would leave me alone, right? So. It's a good point about brambles. <laughs> so, so, so that's the lesson that you've learned so far in your in your nature studies. That's at least a start, Jason. <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying not to hate the brambles. I'm I'm not spiritually evolved yet enough to not hate the brambles as I'm but I did eat a couple of berries today and I'm like, oh you're not all bad. Thanks for the berries. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, yes. 
Well, optimism, I think, is a healthy, I mean, we need it because, again, living with the idea that it's just all horror, I don't think it's survivable for a very long time. And I'm all for making the change in a, again, in, in a balanced way, which as a phrase means nothing, but I'm referring to the feeling where you absolutely, if you feel like there's a way of making the world beautiful and that you can do it, I mean, I, th then I think it's necessary to act on it, but without violence, right? Mm. So it's not like we're just suspended, again, like little topless things. We all have something we bring to this world and the way we participate in making things better is, I think, is bringing out the own, our own message authentically. But the point is not to be afraid and always self-check because it's easy to get carried away uh, by fear. And I think all of us, we're just physically wired in such a way that, that when we act on fear, we start doing stupid things. Like I've certainly done that plenty. So just constantly monitoring. So like, are we really doing this, like not allowing fear to get, get over our senses and become our guide. And beyond that, I think we can create and should create all we, all we want. That's the end of that podcast. There will be another podcast coming up soon. I hope to be back in the flow of things to complete the 300 run of the Limitless as promised, if not on schedule, within the next few months. Uh, I'm fully immersed now in house renovations and heavy duty gardening, uh, landscaping, whatever. I don't even know how to describe it because this is all new to me. I will be uh, creating a new website and uh, moving my activities there which will be very little online stuff beside the Affinity Group's event uh, meeting, live meetings and one-to-one -one consultations for which I'm still currently available for those who are looking help assistance or guidance uh, extracting themselves from the uh, anti-life matrix that wants to turn you all into battery cells the route out of hell back to heaven is through reconnecting to the earth and to nature and that can't be mapped it can only be experienced and that's what I'm currently experiencing is my place in nature and my role on the earth. Uh, fulfilling my purpose, uh, uh, being fruitful, multiplying and having dominion over the earth. Uh, if it doesn't dominate me, it seems to be a symbiotic relationship. The false identity must be expelled in order for 
uh, a man to stand tall enough to to have dominion over nature itself without any uh, aggrandizement involved. And uh, it's a thoroughly soul-nourishing process I'm engaged in now. I do hope to share some of that with you online uh, while at the same time uh, continuing to spend less and less time communicating and more and more time doing. Best way to find out or be in the loop currently is direct contact Jason with you at protonmail.com to find out about online events or one-to-one consultation opportunities.